0: Okay, we're at class number 118 of the Endless Conversations with Yogananda. We're up to number 427 of the Conversations, and I think there's something like, i shouldn't be doing this, but there's 461, so we're actually moving through it. What do you know? So, we're back into the monks trying to be celibate, which we sort of periodically come into this story, so we're back there again. Sexual desires were, for the monks, the greatest temptation, especially for the younger ones. Master said to us once, "If the sexual impulse were taken away, oops, from you if, you, if the sexual impulse were taken away from you, you would realize you would realize you had lost your greatest friend." I'm sure that most of the young men did not relate to that you would lose all interest in life. Sex was given to you to make you strong. The more you give into it, the weaker you become. But when you master it, you'll find that you've become a lion of happiness. You know, um, male sexual energy is not quite the same as female energy, although, and I being in a female body have more experience with the, in this incarnation, but the female version of it I mean, I understand from whatever past life memories I have, and from the men that I've known in my life, you know that sex can be quite obsessive for males. I was uh, very uh, impressed with the conversation that I was hearing just on a video that someone sent to me by Sadhguru, who's that Indian man who's teaching now, and he does a lot of he, he talks a lot to young people. He's done. A, he's doing a very big work with college students. He, he does forums and so on. And so there was some forum in India, in which uh, people were asking him questions. And India, being in a, a real transition stage, it's almost like you have um, you have different races incarnating there at the same time right now. I mean, you have sort of the whole traditional Indian culture, and then you have the next generation, especially people in their twenties and thirties I've traveled in India a lot I've never lived there but I have a multi I, I often have friends of, of two generations I mean I'll have friend, real friendships with people who are thirty and then I'll have friendships with their parents and I've been uh, this one particular uh, saga that I really enjoyed the woman uh, works for a European company and built up a whole company for her European bosses in India hired I don't know how many 100 or 150 bright young Indians of the, in their 20s and 30s periodically she takes her teams maybe the company isn't that large but periodically she takes her teams to Europe and she knows when they're in Europe they tend to follow the European way of life and there's kind of she knows there's this unspoken agreement that when they come back to India nobody talks about what happened in Europe And um, she was just talking to me about this, and I know some of the people she's talking about, not her exact employees, but I know that their standards have become quite Western in terms of relationships and so on. They're all not just waiting at home for their parents to organize a marriage for them. Um, Because they're going off to college, they're coming to America, they're doing all kinds of things. But what I was amused about was her belief that her own children were going to follow the exact standards that she was raised with (laughs) and she when I sort of teased her about it a little bit and her children were a little younger and I had no firsthand knowledge which I was really glad that I didn't but I could look at her children and I could see that it wasn't it wasn't going to be as certain as she thought it was you know there's just this whole other reality that's happening for people that is very confusing exceedingly confusing and then you have these very just solid statements that the masters have made and the masters have always made that these are the these are the realities of the way human beings are made and it's not culture it's not lifestyle it's just the way we're made when i was in india in the last couple of months in uh, mumbai uh Narayani and shurjo have are drawing quite a young crowd because they themselves are whatever they are 20s 30s maybe they're in their 30s and up to 40 by now but they're tra- drawing that generation the the next generation that is what I was starting to say like two different races being born it's it's not that people don't have indian bodies but they there's a mindset you know there was a very traditional indian mindset it was the same for generations and and so it, the culture continued because it never occurred to anyone to to be different. But the whole and when the context of life remained the same, people's lives could be the same. But in the last you know hundred years, hundred and fifty years, um, multinationalism, where multiculturalism, where everybody's going back and forth. Um, Television brings in television and movies, bring in a whole just view of life that was never there before. When we first started visiting India in the late '80s, it was still closed to foreign corporations because Gandhi, when he got the country free, he just pushed the West aside and closed the gates, and so there were no import there were no imported companies. Everything was was homegrown, and then in the early '90s. Pepsi-Cola launched from the Taj Mahal (laughs) and that was and then just like from one year to the next the whole country started shifting of course it had to as Swamiji said there's a sort of sentimental attachment he said in his words exact words were but India is far too important not to take its place important what it has to offer not to take its place with the developed nations of the world and that's basically what's happening I heard this man giving a speech he was an Indian minister Uh, not minister not clergy person but government minister and he was talking about the relative demographics of all the countries in the world and that all the youth is in Asia and that both Europe is very old the median age and the USA is very old by comparison and the birth rate in these countries is not as high so basically you know in another 15 or 20 years all the young energy is in China and in India. It's very interesting. Now, all of that was not exactly what, what I was going to talk about, but when I was in Mumbai, this very dynamic young man who's very forward-looking and is involved. Oh, I know what I was going to say. Once you started bringing in computers and electronics and so on, it's like there's the, the, the traditional world just has no relationship to this. And so everything just starts changing and all the responsibility just goes into the hands of the next generation and it's, it's so everything shifts. So this young man, uh, who's very dynamic in that way, he came to me after a class I gave and he basically said, I've asked lots of... I was starting to talk about Sadhguru. He, he said, I've asked lots of different spiritual teachers what the teaching is on sex and I... And I said, and you've never gotten an answer you liked. <laughs> and he laughed and he said, yes, that's exactly right. He was going to try to put something else onto it, but really I said, you just didn't like what you were told. Yes, that's exactly true. So, <laughs> so I said, okay, try me. We'll see if we can make it work. <laughs> but um, to go back to Sadhguru, which is where I was a moment ago, so this woman, this young woman was uh, talking and just sort of asking, The question she actually asked was whether uh, women should dress modestly or not. And uh, he gave a brilliant answer, the best answer that I've ever heard to a question like that. I have my own opinions. But um, he said, he said, everybody has multiple aspects to their nature. And he said, and if a woman wants to lead with her biology he said <laughs> he said that's her choice but she has to understand that she's presenting her biology as the first picture and then he was talking about traditional indian society he said in traditional societies the sexes are not the genders just don't associate and so he was saying that you know many people in india many men in india are simply not used to the proximity of women they just have no training for the proximity of women. Their entire training is to have the, the sexes separated, except when you have a wife. And so he said when you, and, and this is because this is an issue in India, when women are leading with their biology and there's men of, uh, uh, of an, people who haven't had a, a wide world experience, they just have no, they have no concept of what to do with that kind of energy. And I myself have always felt that it's um, impolite of women. It's not a gesture of friendship to lead with your biology. It just seems rude to me because just people are being who they are. Um, you just put an unnecessary strain on the relationship. I kn- I'm on the relationship with total strangers. But I know there's a whole lot of other points of view on that and I'm really not going to defend that. But the fact of the matter is, especially you know, for these monks that Master's talking to at Mount Washington in a society, he was at least talking in the 40s and 50s, it wasn't nearly as bad as it is now, where it's just, there's no uh, sense of, well, actually the word I want to use is dignity, but there's no sense of uh, modesty. It's just not, it's not a popular thing. You know, I I remember talking to, uh, there were these two young girls, they were high school students, and they came to do a film with me for some, some uh, school project. So we were just talking about community. and They were very interested in community, and I was just talking about... They asked me questions, how we get along, how we relate to each other, all of this. The two girls, they were like 16. They were, it was summer, it was warm weather. They were wearing about as little as it was possible to wear, and still actually be considered dressed. And they were just, that was just the way they were. And they were both quite lovely women. And afterwards, because it was relaxed, I said, Well, you've asked me lots of questions. I'll ask you some some questions. I said, Have you ever thought about the effect of the way you dress? I said, Are you aware that most men have a, a visual sexual response? And they kind of said, What? Huh? How would we know that? I said, I don't know, you might have a gay friend, you might have a brother, you might have a priest, you might have a father, you might have a doctor. You know, like somebody just might mention it to you that when you lead with your biology, you know, the male of the species will have a biological reaction to you. And so they were just like totally not buying it. Um, And uh, then they came on with, it's his problem. I said, well, if you had a friend who was an alcoholic, would you just sit around with an open glass of scotch in your hand all the time? I mean, you would have some sense that, you know, we should relate to each other with some regard for each other's inclinations. Absolutely, I absolutely had no effect. You know, they were only 16. I'm hoping that, you know, some piece of their mind will remember it. I said, you know, I'm not, and I'm not. I said, I'm not a prude. I'm not really. giving you a moral standard it's just that do you want to like have every man on the street be thinking about you in that way it's like it's one thing if you're interested in someone it's quite another if you're just on the bus somewhere and all the guys have to look out the window you know trying not to notice that you're sitting there but it just totally never so when in that context when you drop something like celibacy into the middle of the picture it's, it's a tough age it's a tough age for anyone to be able to live that way and because the moral standards are down, many people don't have to but nonetheless whether you're a monk or whether you're a single person or whether you're in a partnership then you're trying to have some um, restraint in your relationship it's very very hard but there there is a fact it's it's sexuality um the way Master has described it in other places, it's the first delusion in the sense it's such a compelling thought that I will find satisfaction and happiness outside myself that everything else follows from it. And we don't really necessarily think about that. I've had to, I don't have a clear, deep understanding of what Master is saying. But I, I've heard him say it so many times and saying it so strongly Swamiji himself said, um, "How did he put it? Well he said it's going to be several generations before we sort this all out because he said people are not trained. Nobody has any idea what to do with their sexual energy. It used to be repressed or you got you were marriages were arranged really young, or the culture was really controlled, um, or you were just totally repressed and just kind of crazy and then all kinds of weird aberrations took place but just a really sort of healthy balanced understanding of what sexual energy is and how we can work with it Swami was saying we have to start training children we have to talk to people before it's an issue and and Swami remarked once he said I wish it were possible for people to have calm, easy conversations about this subject he was talking about it, Ananda in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s he said, he described it, he said, sex is a physical compulsion. He said, like being hungry, like needing to sleep, like putting on a sweater when you're cold. It's something that your body compels you to do. It just compels you with so much force that it, it takes on a quality that is outside, you know, what just being hungry for lunch is about. He said, but but we need to come to an age where we can just talk about this, where we can actually work with the energies in our body. We don't do that. We don't train children to do it. We, we train them to do sports. You know, that's as close as we come. But we don't really teach people about their bodies. We don't teach health we, in, a, in a real dynamic way. We don't teach breathing. We don't teach yoga. And we don't teach sexuality. It's just held up, especially in our culture now, is just sort of the be-all and end-all of all experience and what unfortunately happens to people is that it isn't. <laughs> and so then they become even more confused because it's not that it, it's not that it's nothing and it's not that it's bad it just simply is what it is. It's not it's not either more nor less than what it is but because it's it's so confused people can't come into right relationship with it. But master has this statement, you know, if you didn't have a sexual impulse you would realize you had lost your greatest friend. And presumably, and this to me is a little, I I don't really have a good understanding of what this is about. But sexual energy is the second chakra. It's the creative impulse. It's, It's looking for inspiration. It's looking for new experiences. It's looking for depth. It's looking for connection with the world. You know, Swami's comment also about sexuality is, he said there's so many things that people do that are actually genuinely bad. You know, they're treacherous, they're unkind, they're um, uh, dishonest, all these different things. He said almost always sexuality is a desire for connection, or just an, an uncontrolled impulse, but not a malicious one. You know, there's many things that people do in the world that are malicious. Sometimes people are careless and cause harm and are selfish, and that crosses over into not such a good thing. But here, Master's saying, you know, you, you, you take hold of one's, we take hold of our own impulses. I asked Swamiji once what was, you know, just sort of the relative advantage of celibacy. This was when a lot of the people who'd been monastics were getting married. And so I was sort of asking Swamiji, sort of, how did these two things stack up? And he said, for most people celibacy is not helpful. Because, as he put it, instead of these were this was his phrase, instead of getting lighter and lighter um, in forced celibacy that is not chosen, a person gets tighter and tighter was the word he used, which it just doesn't serve them. Which is why, in traditional societies, marriages are arranged. It's just sort of the energy is grounded in a in a controlled and wholesome way. The environment is controlled, and then the energy doesn't. Uh, run amok of course the energy always runs amok in all societies you have countless examples but at least it can be uh, held together more he said and then the problem with having a sexual relationship even a committed positive monogamous relationship is he said once you start fulfilling sexual desire which is sort of the mother of all desires you get the habit in your mind that desires are there to be fulfilled. Which I thought was an extremely interesting way to put it. It's just sort of... then we just think, if I want something, then I should have it. And that starts leading to a, a great involvement with Maya in all sorts of ways. I addressed this question in uh, the book Ask Asha. I got uh, a letter from a young couple that I knew. And they sort of said, you know, we know we're supposed to be moderate, but the energy between us is just too strong. So I answered it from another angle, without just talking celibacy, because in most um, couple relationships, Swami actually said to me, he said that the biggest problem in most devotee marriages is sex. I, being somewhat cheeky, said That's not a very original comment, Swami. I said, that's sort of the problem in many people's relationships. But he didn't let me tease. He he stayed solid. He said, yes. He said, one or the other decides that they should be celibate. And then all of a sudden, instead of having a warm relationship, um, they're at war with each other. It was just a very interesting comment on his part. And when he heard that a man who had been a monk for a long time had married but was essentially trying to have a celibate marriage Swami said, you can't have it both ways if he wanted to be a monk he should have stayed a monk if he's going to be married he has to enter in because now it's not just up to him there's somebody else in the relationship and so when um, the couple asked me that and I don't remember everything I wrote in that book but I remember in essence I was trying to say see what happens when you're in a sexual relationship when you're in a physical relationship is that you're constantly affirming that you are a physical body and it's just as simple as that and even more if you're in a a responsive relationship you're always having yourself affirmed because somebody is looking at you somebody is finding you attractive somebody is drawn to you or you're always being drawn and so there's this constant affirmation of your individuality the nature of your individuality complementary nature of your individuality trying to get someone else's attention and as a result you become very identified with who you are i mean i've had marriages and also long periods of celibacy sort of both young and older so i've sort of been on all sides of this question and when you're not in a physical relationship and not in a romantic relationship you actually begin to forget that you exist in a physical way, in, in, a, in a way that's just because nobody is affirming it. It's just, it's just not being affirmed, and so you move around inside your body, but you don't think about your body, you don't see it as much, you don't think about your gender. And these are really fundamental identities that gradually get pushed to the side if you have to exert enough energy to push them to the side. So, talking to this young couple, I was saying, you know, these are the pitfalls. And that you also become selfish. That you become egoic-identified. That you become proud of your attractiveness. That you become uh, engaged constantly in trying to be attractive. Um, all of this has to be balanced. Um, that you become selfish in, in your, your desires and what you want and when you want it. So, if we can turn all these things around... Um, and not fall into these pitfalls. I mean, for most, most people marry, if it wasn't for sexual energy, most people would not marry. That's the compelling energy that puts you there, and then what happens is, then you have children, then you have responsibilities, and you learn to be unselfish. And you would never take on all of that. You know, you, you just wouldn't do it, because you wouldn't feel the need to. And that's, you know, men are compelled a lot into marriage relationships because of sexual energy. And so when women stopped being chaste, if that's the word we want to use, um, men stopped marrying them. (laughs) And that's sort of what's, you know, that's a lot of what's been happening in our society. Now, I'm not actually saying any of that is bad, because I don't really think this contract of, You know, selling yourself for women, selling themselves for security was such a good idea, either. It's just that the whole thing is the positive thing. I'm talking all about marriage, he's talking about monks. But the positive thing about all of this is that all relationships now have to be put on a basis of actuality rather than tradition, fear, um, anything like that. We're just, we have this equality that we're working with. So in all contexts, sooner or later, all physical compulsions have to be overcome. And Master talks here in a couple of places a little bit later about food as a good place to start. But all physical compulsions have to be overcome. The more powerful the compulsion, the greater the energy required to overcome it, and then the greater the self-mastery and the victory. That's why he says here, the more you give in to sex, the weaker you become. But when you master it, You'll find that you've become a lion of happiness, because when you have really mastered that impulse and not merely aged out of it, which is something else entirely, um, because the sometimes the 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 inner longing is there even if the physical system has quieted down. That one hasn't really overcome it; one has simply outlasted it, which is quite different. Which you know always concerns me about being young again because I love being older it's much more relaxed but um, now let me just that there was another thought there but the other part of this and this is what's so important I had a friend who who just really basically wrecked his life trying to be celibate is the only way I can put it just he read these things that Master said and he made these decisions that he would be celibate but it was uh, an imposition on his nature to do that and later on, because I, I got married, you know, in 19-whatever-it-was, 81, 82, and I was talking to that man later, and he said, um, and we were talking about what a wreck he'd made, and he said, well, why, didn't, why weren't you wrecked? I said, it never occurred to me that that particular instruction applied to me. <laughs> it just never crossed my mind that, that that particular discipline was at the top of my list. I had lots and lots of disciplines that I was following, but it's never crossed my mind that that would be one of them. I mean, when I was a nun, yes, of course, but once I married, it was just, I was married. That was what my life was going to be. It didn't assume outlandish proportions, but nonetheless, it just, it, it wasn't what was happening. So when Master says and speaks as unequivocally as he does and promises us, you know that we will be a lion of happiness if we can master this. We have to also apply the art of spiritual life. And the art is I can't do everything at once, and I have to do that which comes spontaneously from me, rather than that which I just pick out of the air. I remember a woman was interested in becoming part of the Naya Swami order, and uh, she's, she wanted to take the Naya Swami vow which was not appropriate at all and i said why why are you thinking of that vow she said well it's the highest vow <laughs> and it wasn't ego it was more like she's a competitive person and so being competitive she might as well go for the you know the top vow like that no no that's not exactly how this works and on the spiritual path people do that too well if this is what i'm supposed to master i will so but you have to watch uh, you have to watch it much more sensitively than that now of course these men are monks and and Master wants them to be monks and he wants them they, they're drawn to that life and he's accepted them into his monastery and he's talking to these monks so he's wanting them to really hear him and he's wanting to really give them the energy the and the incentive to put this energy behind them so what he says is very appropriate and it's exactly true And this is sort of when I was talking to that young man man in Mumbai. It's like, I'm not going to tell you something that's untrue. It's like, you know, sexuality, especially for a man, takes a tremendous amount of energy. It ages him, it drains him. I was talking about a friend I knew who was an Olympic athlete. And when he got married, the coaches, you know, took the wife aside and said, you know, when this man is competing, you you need to leave him alone alone. I mean, that it's just these are athletes. This is not even yogis. It's like it takes a lot of energy, and and that's a fact. And it also pulls your energy into a very physical reality, which is absolutely contrary to yogic practice in the ways that I was describing. You can get very light when you don't have this constant physical affirmation going on. So one can't comfort oneself by saying it isn't true it is true every word of it is true it's just a question of what is appropriate for me what is my actual next step and, you know as my seed becomes an apple tree what stage am i in because if we try to push it if we try to push the envelope too hard it breaks and then you lose you lose more than you gain so having said all that i mean it's still very it's a very important teaching and it's it's just we're just not there yet i think in our age you know, women are, women are so... Um, I mean, I, I happen to be one, so I can sort of speak about these things. Swami Kriyananda said to Nirmala once, a, a lady in our community, he saw a dress in the window and he said to Nirmala, Nirmala, if you were a woman, would you wear that dress? And Nirmala said, well, sir, as it happens, I am a woman. <laughs> and he said, she said, but no, I wouldn't wear that dress. But it's, it's sort of like being a female... And I understand and I respect that. I just watched a very interesting Ken Burns documentary on women getting the vote. And, you know, so I just sort of have a little historical sense of where women have come from and what we're working with. But I think there's a um, there's a lot of errors happening right now that are. Um, that are coarsening the relationships between men and women and I'm sorry to see that and I don't think it's making anyone happy it, it's it's not uh, it's not kind is actually what it comes down to it's just not kind we should we should take each other's realities into account and not just um, think only of ourselves it's very very selfish however we're in a necessary balance you know it's just like Everything is being pushed too far so that it can come back to balance. Women have been oppressed for a very long time and so now they're just fighting back. And once they finally, you know, on a cosmic scale, once it's finally gotten as far as it can get and everybody's really content that we've done it, then, well, then a new generation will be born. Because these are not really things that are determined by the human ego. They're determined by divine law and what is needed is the feminine but what is needed is the feminine not women who are, who are so masculine uh, it, it, the yin-yang balance is required and it doesn't really matter what gender your body is the yin-yang balance is where happiness comes from and we just all have to come into right relationship with this so, any comments or thoughts or questions about any of that? Okay, number four two eight. This is a completely other subject because these are just random. Do not seek honor. This is a quote from Master. Master says, Do not seek honor in God's work. Whoever seeks it will receive dishonor. If what you seek, however, is not honor but the glory of God you will receive from his own hands his infinite blessedness you know this, is, this particular little explanation is something that's very dear to my heart um, many of us and again this is something that it, it's a very personal thing but many of us are called strongly to serve that seva is a real part of our sadhana certainly for me it's just who I am I'm very active and I I like to serve I've always enjoyed serving I'm always surprised when I meet people and I have met them who are on the spiritual path who don't, under, don't understand service they're here to, to realize God so they want to meditate they want to chant but they don't understand why they should get so involved in helping other people I, I can't really take people across that because it's very instinctive to me And in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, Swami's commentary, it says, loving, selfless service to others is the best way to overcome the ego. It's just an unequivocal statement like that. Sensitive, loving service to others. Um, but, But some of us, and I count myself among it, also feel a great responsibility for Master's work. And I, I came to this, I came to this early on the spiritual path, but it wasn't, that part of it took me a little more time. I, I moved to Ananda Village in 1971 to be with Swami Kriyananda. And I was there to learn from him because I knew he could teach me like no one else could. And I attached myself to him and he responded and so I became part of his uh, world very early i i began to work as his secretary i saw him often and we were he was building I, not we at that time he was building ananda community working night and day just with absolute total self-sacrificing energy and i held myself aloof from that project because i was there to learn from swami and i was there just sort of with this one pointed idea And he was busy building the community, but I just didn't see what it had to do with me. And in fact, I would sort of had this Vedanta attitude that you just don't get that involved in the world. And then I remember driving through the community, and he must have been driving, he often drove his own car at that point, or Seva was driving. I was in the back seat, we were driving through Ananda, and I was just looking out the window, and I saw the barn was here, and the little... You know, there were some cows over here and there was a little cottage up here and a couple of little houses. I mean, everything was... Everything had just been, you know, just chiseled out of the bare earth with so much... It took so much energy for every little thing to manifest. We had so little money and the whole enterprise was so... um, You know, we were just pulling it down from the causal. It It was really not obvious. And Swamiji was so, working so hard to make it all work. And I suddenly realized that I was just taking from Swamiji. And I was giving back because I was helping him write his letters and I was cooking. and But I wasn't helping him with what mattered to him. You know, he had this commission from Master to make this community. And I was, I, I was defining my friendship according to what he could give to me. And I just wasn't helping. And I realized, you know, if I have a friend and I'm working on something that's really important and my friend just sits there and drinks tea and lets me work, it doesn't feel like much of a relationship. And so it first crossed my mind that I wasn't being a very good friend. And later on, reading in Uh, master's writings about the various kinds of love and master says that friendship is the highest form of love he said you would think that mother love would be the highest form because it's so self-sacrificing he said but it's friendship because friendship is the only relationship in which there is no element of compulsion he said even mother love once once a mother conceives she doesn't have a choice about whether her body is used to grow that child, and in fact, you know, her own well-being will be robbed if the child needs it. That's why, um, in cultures where nutrition is not so great, women will lose a tooth for every child that they bear, because it's just the the minerals are drained right out of her body, and you know, in that's why women would get very old bearing children in ages that were less modern than the one we're in. And the woman has no choice. She may love the baby, but she has no choice. And even after the baby is born, the baby will die unless she takes care of it. So there's this forced element. He said, but friendship is completely free. It's like you choose it. And so therefore it's the purest and the most noble, which is very interesting. And he talked about it even between the guru and the disciple. And this is what Jesus says in the Bible you call me master, Jesus says to his disciples, but I call you friend. And then he says, the servant um, you know, takes care of his master, but the cause of the master is never his own. Whereas a friend, friend, your cause is my cause. So I realized that I wasn't being a friend to Swami, that he was a perfect friend to me and I was not a friend to him. So my first inclination was that I needed to do it for him the same way as I was doing everything else for him I needed to I needed to care about Ananda and care about what Swami cared about but then as time passed I really began to feel in myself well I really began to realize that I was born for this that was just the only way, why else was I born? I started asking myself why else was I born? I could say well I was born for my own self-realization but I I don't know. It's never seemed like enough to me. Just, I, I mean, I'd like to get away from this ocean of suffering. But I, the the impulse to help others is stronger, and the and the impulse to help Master and to help Swamiji, because they gave their lives for it, and they've given my life to me. So how do how do we pay back? How do you actually give back to the Guru? How do I give back to Swamiji? Well, it's obvious what was important to them, and so there's a strong desire in me has always been to help that project. And so what this has translated into, and this is what he's talking about, is to be very ambitious. You know, I'm not passive in my service. I've always been creative and and entrepreneurial and initiating, instead of just doing the least that can be done let's do the most that can be done and what more can we do it's very very touching at the end of, of the book Lightbearer, which I just published about Swami's life he goes to um, Medjugorje where there had been of, uh, appearances of Divine Mother since 1981 and Swami went there about 2010 or 2011 very close, maybe 2012 close to the end of his life now wait, am I wrong? no, it might have been 29 it's not really important but it was in the later years of his life and uh, he went there with Nandini and Miriam just the two of them so I think it was before 2010 because Nandini, um, Narayani wasn't with them and he spoke to one of the visionaries there who is still having uh, visions of Divine Mother every day, even now? I mean, after 30 years, every day, uh, Mary appears to her, and and Swami had a very deep connection with her. It's Viska, the woman named Viska, and Swami asked her to ask Mary, as Divine Mother, if there was anything more Swami could do to serve her, and and Swamiji said. I've done everything I could think of to do, but could you ask her if there's something more that I could do? I mean, think about that. Think that's. I mean, when you look at his life, how, how, you know, the music, the books, the incredible variety of things, the constant flow of ideas that he had, which Light Bearer chronicles, because he was extremely ambitious. Master told him you have a great work to do, and he didn't see that as... As, as to his honor he saw that as a as a responsibility that had been given to him and Swami has often said you know almost none of the disciples Master said to Swami every man has disappointed me and you mustn't disappoint me and Swami thought about that he said you know they didn't disappoint him spiritually I mean Rajasi, Dr. Lewis um, Oliver Black but they disappointed Master this is how Swami understood it, because they weren't ambitious for the work. That Master was there to establish this, this work for ages to come, and, and it needed male energy, whether it came from a man or a woman, to, to understand that there's work to be done here. It has to be done. So Swami was very, very ambitious. And I, I, I understand people have different temperaments. And I, I deeply understand that one person's Dharma is not another person's Dharma. It's just as simple as that. When Sri Rama Yogi, who was a liberated master, a disciple of Ramana Maharshi, and Swami met him in this tiny little village in India, and he had just he, he was doing no work. and you know he, the, even the little, the people in the village, uh, the yogi said he just would talk to them about the crops and about food. And and Swami thought, you know, isn't there more you should be doing? And the yogi said, God has done what he wants to do through this body. So it's not like everybody has to work like that. But for some people and for many people, to be ambitious for God's work is a good thing. And this is what he says right here. Um, if If what you seek, however, is not honor for yourself but for the glory of God. You will see receive from his own hands his infinite blessedness. So it's quite a promise, isn't it? And I think it's, it's something each of us has to think about, which is, what can I give? And once again, it's not like everybody's life looks the same. I have a very public life. I have certain abilities that have, um, that God has been able to use. Um, And I'm very pleased about that. But it doesn't make any difference what we do or or whether it even shows. It doesn't have to show. But if in our hearts every day the question is, what more can I do to serve you? That's where Swami's comment, you know, asking Viska to ask Divine Mother, is there anything more I can do? And who knows? Some people's bodies are stronger. Some people have public talents. It's... it's very important to understand. It doesn't have anything to do with what it looks like. It has to do with what one is doing in one's heart. You know, how, how can I glorify God by my actions? It's, it's really a beautiful thought. Okay. Number. Did she give him an answer? Pardon me? Did she give him an answer? Actually, Swamiji says a question about Viska. Swami said he never heard from her, she never wrote to him but he felt in his heart he felt an answer. He felt like that either Visca or Divine Mother answered him in his heart. And the answer he got was love more. You know, at that point in Swami's life, what more could he do? But just love more. So that it really is the answer. When Swami would write books, that was that's how he was loving more. You know, because that was... That was how he expressed love. He had ideas, he had words, he wrote music, he started communities, but what he was doing was expressing love for Divine Mother, serving Divine Mother. That's what Mother Teresa of Calcutta said when she was asked by journalists about whether her method of serving the poor was really as efficient as other NGOs in India non-government organizations who are more efficient at serving the poor than she was an idiotic question that got a really good response she just looked at the reporter she I met her a number of times in India she was a very blunt absolutely no nonsense person she looked at the reporter and said i'm not i'm not helping the poor i'm serving i'm doing what jesus asked me to do that was, that was her world. I'm doing what Jesus asked me to do. Meaning, if he asked me to do something else, I would walk away from the poor and I'd never think twice about them. It was She was doing what Jesus wanted of her, period. And that's how she got into that work. She was on a train going to her monastery and she heard Jesus tell her to serve the poor. So she got off the train and went and served the poor. And the day he told her not to do it anymore, she would stop just as easily as she'd picked it up powerfully she picked it up so what Swami got from Divine Mother was love which is all he had been doing but at that stage of his life it really turned powerfully into a sharing of blissful consciousness that was how he changed very much from the beginning to the end at the beginning he was sharing it through all of these forms ideas teaching the end of his life he was just sharing consciousness more than anything so well, let's take a little break now before we go on to the next one then. All right. Number 429. This is just so sweet. Um, James Collar was one of. Oh, uh, the, the, question, the question was raised. My master actually said every male disciple of a Rajasi has disappointed me. I don't think. Every male disciple? Except Rajasi has disappointed me. I mean, it's a strange its a strange statement that Master made. That's why Swami had to go to, to a lot of trouble to think, what did he really mean? Uh, because, of course, Master wasn't walking around being displeased with all his disciples. That just wasn't valid. But Swami himself said, and he, I mean, it's obvious if you look at it, it's just that Swami understood the mission. In, and, you know, other people understood the teachings, understood discipleship and Kriya and self-realization... But Swami was born for the mission, and it's also you're born for it. Swami himself said that. He said it's not something. He said he he remarked on that once. He said you can't train it into people. People are just born for it. They have a sense of Master's mission, and it's just. I mean, I I feel I've come to feel that I'm one of those. I mean, self-evident if you look back at my life. He put me out in a public role quite early, and in fact, I mean, I was his secretary, and I actually thought I was going to spend the rest of my life just following around with a pencil and a notepad I mean I was just pretty sure that I was I was starting young and when I was an old woman I would still be doing that and then at a certain point he told me that no I wasn't going to actually do that that he'd he'd worked it out and I think Keshava took over for me if I'm not not Keshava Betts but Keshava Taylor and uh, Swami's and, and it was just like he said uh what happened was, how did he how did he start it? But he basically said, you wouldn't be satisfied if that's all you did with your life. I said, why don't we try it and at the end we'll see. Because <laughs> I really didn't like, I didn't like the where the conversation was going. And he just said, no, it's just you have something else that you have to do. And of course, you know, I, when I look back and I see... I mean, another way of saying it is that I wouldn't have grown in the same way, and therefore I wouldn't have felt that my life had had challenged me in the way it needed to challenge me. But he said, you know, you just you have to go and do something else. And I was, I have this other destiny. But the 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 realization of really being born for the for the mission is something that has just grown on me over the years. And without, without, you know. I'm not. I'm not seeking honor in God's work. It's not that when I say I was born for it, it doesn't mean that I was born for the recognition. It's just that this is what I want to do, is I want to make this available, and I want to do what I can do to make it available. And Swami himself said that he had just a, a powerful experience of really wanting everyone in the world to know about this teaching and feeling it so deeply. And he said it was right after Swami had that experience that Master said to him, you have a great work to do. And Swami Ji himself said, it wasn't that Master was imposing it on him. It was that Master recognized who Swami was and guided him in the direction of his own energy. And that's exactly what Swami saw in me, even though I didn't see it in myself until many, many years later. Then I sort of began to understand my own nature better. Um, but he saw in me that I just would have to do this. there would be no way that i couldn't it 's all very interesting. I say that both to inspire others to to you know to be dynamic in whatever ways you can be you don 't have to have massive big public talents, but just there 's just always that thought in your mind: How can I serve? How can I serve? How can I help? How can I bring people to master i when um tushti. Um, who many of you know Surrender's wife who died a few years ago it was very interesting to be with her I, I, oddly enough if I'm in a formal situation I'll talk about Master all the time but I don't really tend to bring it up with strangers I, I mean I just I don't I'm just more quiet Tushti when I was with her it was so interesting because every time she had an opening with anyone she would start talking about yoga and kriya and autobiography of a yogi and master and I was with her in the hospital and with doctors and in stores and, but she would just it was interesting to me she would always bring it up she was always looking for master's disciples and it made me realize that I don't behave that way at all I was with Swamiji in the, in the own bookstore in the Metropolitan Mall in Gorgon, India and he was standing He wasn't dressed in his Swami robes I don't know why he wouldn't have been Because he usually did in India But he wasn't We were just standing Sort of in the little metaphysical section And some random person came out And pulled out an autobiography of a yogi And was just looking at it And Swami just turns to him Just like this I was his disciple He said He was the greatest man I ever knew And he just sort of Swami said it in this very boy, boyish manner Just like that And the guy says, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, sure. (laughs) But it was just so touching to me. Because I was just so eager to tell him. Because there he was, he'd picked up Autobiography of a Yogi, he wanted him to know. And I had to realize to myself, I can't remember ever doing that. You know, I just, I'm a little aloof. Unless it's my responsibility, and then I'm not at all. But everybody has to be themselves. All right. Yes. He was uh, sort of like that more at the end of his life too. Once he moved to India, Mm -hmm. which of course we were in India after he'd moved there. He couldn't talk enough about that stuff. You know, at the end of his life, it was the only thing he would talk about. No matter what subject it was, he would very quickly bring it around to finding autobiography, meeting master, becoming his disciple. I mean, just it was he had only one subject at that point. Every day. It was absolutely wonderful. All right. now we're talking this is a a quote from James Collar James Collar was an advanced disciple of Master Master actually said James Collar would be self-realized Master said, I don't know how but Divine Mother says so (laughs) because James Collar was kind of a very colorful kind of an odd character he had commotion karma is how Swami described it everything he did just sort of it would create a commotion Uh, sir said James Collar on a visit from Phoenix I have such a great longing for God why does he take so long in coming what a sweet question ah the, the master replied with a blissful smile that is what makes it all the sweeter when he does come that is the nature of his romance with the devotee that's such an annoying answer but it's so beautiful Swamiji used to say that he, when he would see that people were unhappy and suffering, he would, instead of thinking of their present suffering, he would think, oh, then when God comes, it will be all the sweeter for them because of the suffering they're going through now. Isn't that a beautiful way to think about it? That's Of, of all the ways to be able to deal without being... Distressed by other people's suffering. Um, What the phrase that the way I've translated that in my mind is this is the kind of suffering that forces people to turn to God. You know, when you hear about tragic deaths or um, children who become ill or, you know, babies that are born and a mother has to raise a, a terribly disabled child and you just think, this is what draws people to God. Otherwise, if it all had worked out the way they had wanted it to work out, why would they have thought beyond this world? And, and of course, for Swamiji to be able to say that, what allows him to say that is he stands in the center of the circle of past, present, and future, The the center point of a wheel the, all, the whole perimeter of the wheel is equidistant from the center point. And when, when we come into super-consciousness, as Swami described it, you stand right at that center point. And this is past, present, and future whirling around you. So you're right here, and the past is as close to you as the future is. And so this person is suffering here, but from this perspective, you can see that their future liberation is also as present as their present suffering it's just we think because we live on the perimeter we don't understand but as we move closer and closer to the center we begin to see more of the circle around us so that's, I mean Master gave no other answer, he didn't, he didn't give a big philosophical answer he didn't, he didn't say anything he says oh that's the nature of the romance so that you you're sad now because then you're happier so much happier later. That's beautiful. Well, it's beautiful in theory. <laughs> and it's it's it does it does communicate a certain vibration that really touches the heart. But it's not a rational answer. It's not an intellectual answer. It's a it's an answer you have to grasp with intuition or you can't grasp it. So one presumes when Master said that to James, to James, that he was able to take it with his heart. I mean, and this is why at a certain point all Swami talked about was meeting Master, because all the enormous intellectuality and all the philosophy and all the reasoning, it just, it, the, the closer you get to the center point, this was Swami's comment, because creation is so complicated we think that God is complicated and we don't understand that the closer you get to God the simpler and simpler it becomes so when Swami Swami was never far away but when Swami had work to do he had to create this whole culture of self-realization and he had to train all his um, poor benighted westerners in all of this but when all that work was done he could just come into the center point you become very childlike at that point. It's just completely simple. So when James asked a question like that, there's just so many huge philosophical answers, and Master didn't feel to give that at all. Ah, oh, that's so much sweeter. Because he's standing in the center point, and, he, and and every saint and Master doesn't complain. <laughs> when they transcend when it, they, they, they recognize that it was all just fine. It sees the mind, the mind can't go there. There's just no way the mind can go there. You have to just be something else. Number 430, he says, Above everything else, the Master said, be loyal to God, devote more time to seeking Him, and be less concerned over lesser duties, which someday won't exist anymore anyway. In those lesser preoccupations lies the greatest delusion. Never look upon them as in themselves important. Nothing is so pressingly important as your daily tryst with God. You know, there's that wonderful story Swami tells in The Path of when Master was trying to finish, I think it was the towers at Encinitas in time for the dedication, and perhaps it was Jean Haupt, but one of the disciples just who had a very important job to do, just didn't show up for a whole day. And afterwards, Master said, "We had so much work to do. Where were you? And he said, "Oh, sir, I was meditating. Oh, well, then, of course, why didn't you say so? <laughs> and And we have to now this is another one of those teachings, you see, because it isn't merely that you sit in meditation. It's that you put out as much energy in your tryst for God because, these are the kind of teachings that allow one to substitute low energy for high energy in the name of detachment from. I remember when somebody came to Swamiji with a quote from Master, this was in the early years of Ananda, where we followed what we still follow, which is what I call kamakazi karma yoga, where you just, you just give yourself over to it without any restraint. And they brought to, to Swamiji some quote from Master and it said, you know, meditate in the morning, meditate in the night, do three or four hours of God reminding work, you know, basically between your meditation periods. Swami looked at it and he said, oh, that's not for now, that's for a higher age. And He just closed the book and he wouldn't even hear of it. And I remember when there was this one woman who, he, who worked all the time and one of her friends actually was appealing, the woman was there and her friend was appealing to Swami tell her to take some time off she should take some time off and Swami turned not to to the woman who was appealing and said I know what's good for her just like that because what was true was if this woman wasn't actively serving, she did not rise spiritually she actually got into moods and her energy went low So it wasn't like she was having a tryst with God. It was like if she wasn't actually active, her her center of gravity sank. And having watched her for years, gradually she basically burned out a lot of that karma and her center of gravity got higher so that she could work a little less and either stay at the same point of inspiration or rise above it. So it isn't just a question of what you're doing outwardly. And this is where, again, people get fundamentalist about the scripture. And they sort of think, well, this is what I'm supposed to do. I remember there was this man who moved from here to the village. And he got to the village and he was telling me what his program was and how much he was fasting and what he was doing this and doing that. I said to him, why don't you just kind of like get with the program up there? (laughs) Instead of like, having your own, like, reality. Why don't you, like, see what's going on there and see if you can fit into it? Because he wasn't really following Master's advice. He was just egoically deciding who he was supposed to be. And it was not an actual spontaneous expression of his own natural next step. And so this this is the balance point. But, of course, when you hear these things, these are the ways that we keep ourselves um, centered. He's, but he also says, never look upon them as in themselves important. And his keys like that. It's not that the service is not important to us. It's that uh, we, we're growing through doing it. So what we have to ask ourselves is, am I growing? And, and that's how you question it. You know, am I really just staying too busy because I prefer to be distracted and I am not at peace with myself? Or am I actually feeling God's presence as I work and then finding that my meditation is also strong because of the service I'm doing? And also we just have to feel who we are. Swami includes that story in the path of Marinalini Mata, who comes down to breakfast and had meditated an hour that day. She was 13 years old, bear in mind, or 14 or 15, something like this. And Master said, "Uh, you didn't meditate. And she said, sir, I meditated a whole hour. He said, you would have been better off meditating half an hour, because you didn't meditate more for meditating longer. And so that's sort of what we have to look at. Am I just putting in time, or am I actually going deeper and deeper? And, and nobody can answer those questions for you, but n- nor can a formula answer it for you. I mean, I, I have a lot of faith in the dynamic of Ananda. I don't know how else to put it. That's why I say to people, why don't you just get with the program? Because I've seen people who just kind of enter into the flow of what's happening, that everything works out in balance. And people who are always... What, the only way I could phrase it is calculating their own position in relation to what they think they ought to be doing. End up so preoccupied that the um, the magnetism of Ananda itself uh, doesn't reach them. Swamiji was very, very balanced, and and he kept us very busy. You know, there were just there were very few among us he knew that who could really benefit. Um, now I don't want to say for more meditation. That's not the way to put it, but but we were there to serve, and balance that life with meditation. But we, like you said, oh that's for a higher age. You know we have a job to do in this particular life. Now you know I'm biased that way, so I I sort of feel like I have to issue a disclaimer. But truthfully, I've watched by now hundreds, probably thousands of people, and. I, Anybody, here's how it goes, anybody who's really meditating deeply doesn't have to make a point of it. They just do it. They don't have to argue for their right to do it. You know, They don't have to argue against work. They don't have to argue against being too many demands. If it's really their, their nature, they just meditate. They just do it. And then they also have plenty of time to work because they really are drawn to that life. I think that is actually what I'm trying to say. If it's natural to you, you will do it. You won't won't watch television and do this and do a thousand other things. You'll just meditate. And you'll be very satisfied with your meditation. And you'll go in late to work and nobody will say anything to you. (laughs) And you'll leave early and skip the social events and no one will say anything to you because it's what you're supposed to be doing. But those who argue for their right to meditate, it's quite different. Okay? It doesn't happen as much as it used to because used to meaning there was a time when Ananda was Ananda Village and we were all sort of in it together and and it was just everybody could see everybody. I mean now even though we have this community a person can get in their car and drive off and nobody has any idea where they've gone. At Ananda Village we were just all there and everybody knew where everybody was all the time. Yeah, because very few of us had cars, and nobody had any place to go, and nobody had any money to spend when they got there. So it's just we always knew where everybody was, and it was less, you don't know, whatever it was, a hundred people, hundred and fifty. But we could just we all knew each other, all the time. And I mean, if somebody didn't show up, you were afraid they were dead or something, so you would go look for them. Really, I remember one Kriya initiation, one man didn't come, and Swami said, you know, go find out why he wasn't there. So I went, because really, is he sick? Did he fall? And so I went, I went and I, I must have had to go to his house. I, I asked him. His answer was marvelous. He said, I just didn't feel like bowing down to the gurus last night. <laughs> That's what he said. So I went and told Swami, and Swami said, I can understand that. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like a huge thing. Where, where could he possibly be? Even to miss Sunday service, where could he be? Who, where would you be if you weren't there? so so number 431 Swami says Master says because the sexual impulse is usually stronger in men the spiritual path is harder for them than for women those men who get there however become very great this is always creates a lot of controversy when you say that one he puts it this time and I think he's talking about the monastic life also but uh, he just says, because the sexual impulse is usually stronger, meaning the identification with the body, the compulsion to you know, marry, have children, get all the, those responsibilities happening, um, it's harder to repudiate that energy. But once they get the willpower in place, Master said, men are more attracted to sex and women are more attracted to maya. Men are more attached to sex and women are more attached to maya that's how he put it the little home the little baby the furniture the little house the little car my little husband you know my whole little scene women just get all engaged in all of this and men have a cleaner the masculine mind has a cleaner sort of image and so he said more women are there in quantity but in, in greatness that masculine willpower the men become very great Actually, when when I was first working here in Palo Alto um, over a long period of time, and it had come from Ananda Village, and so many of the public programs we gave, there were so many more women than men. And I just began to, you know, just I'd never thought about it before. So I actually got out the list of membership. I got the list of membership from our church and from Ananda Village, and I think maybe I had one or two other lists, It was very interesting because it was almost evenly men and women when you actually got past the outer ring and Ananda village was almost 50-50 just straight down the outer ring had more women in it but more men really stuck with it and got deeper a higher percentage of them you would say lots of women came and went because it's just sort of the spiritual path is a little natural to them but men were the ones who set their mind now I'm not being chauvinistic; it's it's just the way. But it's an interesting statement, Master makes. So women get lost in little things, and you know they, they don't want to sacrifice um, the way. But a man, if he sees a goal, he'll sacrifice for it. He, you know, the masculine energy will just focus and not pay attention, and the woman is concerned about all the little things that go along the way. The the women is or the moon. They're just all the, all the variations, you know, in 30-day cycle. It just goes from nothing to full, to nothing to full, to nothing to full, and she's watching all the little pieces of it. And the men are the sun, and the sun changes, but slowly. <laughs> and so they just watch the horizon. The sun comes up in essentially the same place and gradually shifts. And the women are just running like this, you know. <laughs> and the men are just looking like that. I mean, together is you have the yin yang. But you can see how very different it becomes. Of course there are individual exceptions on either side. Of course. We're talking about we're talking about masculine and feminine characteristics, but everyone is yin yang perfect in the end. I will merge within myself the opposites of duality. That's the Nyaswami vow. Yeah. Merge. Yes, merge is the word. Merge within myself The opposites of duality I will never take a partner I will merge within myself I am complete in myself And within myself Will merge The opposites of duality Become whole Right The yin yang I, I like yin yang Because nobody reacts to it When you say male and female And when you say men and women You get all this reactive energy If you just say yin yang Many people can 't remember which is which and they don 't think to and they don 't think to react about it because there 's just no sort of chauvinism in one side or the other, but that 's all we 're talking about yeah, I, I mean I learned over many years to always speak about yin yang because i I just got too much grief <laughs> if i didn 't all right, my friends, I think that 's it, so we have covered. 427 through 431. Thank you.